Thank you, Alex. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, we're making our way through the book of Acts together on Sunday mornings here at Palmetto Hills Church. And as you're turning there uh, to Acts, just want to welcome you. If you are visiting with us, I want to extend a warm welcome. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad you're here. We'd love the opportunity to meet you before the day is up. Acts chapter 19, we'll begin reading in verse 21. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And then chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and he said that the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. 
And that's our confidence this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and teaching of His Word. Father, we bow before You and we acknowledge that we are coming from all sorts of different places, not just geographically, but emotionally, physically, spiritually. We have uh, pain and struggles that we carry. We have joys and excitements that we're looking forward to. And in the midst of all that, we pray that You, by Your Spirit, would minister unto us You would give us strength, that you would challenge and encourage, that we might see Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. I want us to think this morning about the idea of influence. And uh, as parents or as children, you've probably said or heard these words, you know what, I just don't want you hanging out with so-and-so. Why? Well, they're they're just a bad influence. If you think about marketing, uh, it is a not-so-subtle attempt to influence us through a trusted speaker or a funny situation or an emotional appeal to purchase certain products or services. You know that there are social media influencers? Have you heard of these people? They're people that have so many followers on social media that companies pay them to promote and use their products. If we think about things in a positive light, influence from sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ can have a huge impact on our lives. Think about the people that have impacted you in your faith, maybe because of their servant leadership or their compassion or their empathy or speaking the truth in love or courageous obedience to Jesus Christ. Maybe joy through suffering has inspired and motivated and influenced you to keep going. What we see here in Acts chapter 19, the second part of Acts 19, is this reality. God's mission and the gospel of Jesus Christ influenced, it impacted Paul the Ephesians, and beyond. And one of the things that we'll see here is that the influence of God's mission is not always what we expect. It's not always what we want. It's not always predictable. But make no mistake about it. God's mission influences and changes and transforms not only our lives, but the lives of others. And we we need this message this morning because at times... If we're honest with ourselves, we are tempted to think that the influence and impact of God's mission is marginal and meaningless. What difference does it really make that I'm a Christian? What, how does the church in general and our church in particular impact our community and our neighborhoods with the good news of Jesus? Are we doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God as the prophet Micah reminds us of? Do other people know we're Christians because of our love for them and one another? By the fruit of the Holy Spirit, are we growing in grace? My prayer for us this morning, my challenge is that that we would see the impact of God's mission in our lives. And if you feel disconnected or jaded or angry or weak or apathetic or burned out about your faith or about the situation of life in this world, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ has an open-door policy. You ever had a boss or a professor in college that said, you know, I have have an open-door policy, but we still 
weren't really sure if we should go visit them, right? We, we questioned that. And that, that reality plays true in our relationship with God. But what I want to encourage you with is that God really does have an open door policy with us. And Jesus welcomes us at any time to realign, recalibrate, reorient our lives around His life, death, resurrection, ascension, and continual intercession for us. He reminds us who we are and whose we are. And the more we embrace and recognize God's influence, the impact, the the shockwaves of God's mission, we'll be able to walk and live with Him in a deeper, more powerful way. Think about this. We have more things to entertain us now than we ever have before. We have apps upon apps that are intended to help us organize and prioritize our lives. They promise better and deeper connection with other people. We have the capacity now to be more efficient and more productive than ever. But what do we realize? What do we sense as a society, as a people? Boredom, anxiety, depression, outrage, addiction, uh, isolation, in part... What I want to suggest to you this morning is in part that's because we fail to let our hearts and minds be shaped and enlarged and impacted and influenced by God's mission. So the first thing we see from the passage is resolve in verses 21 and 22. After Paul spends three months preaching in the synagogue and two years preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, as we saw last week, revival breaks out in Ephesus. People are converted through the uh, revelation of some posers. People gave glory and extolled God. And people didn't just believe in the gospel, but they came repenting of their sins. And what was Paul's response to that? What was, what were the, what was the response of the disciples to this revival in Ephesus? We've made it. Look at all the people who have been converted. God is working in this place of all places. Mission accomplished. No. No, that's not the response. Look at verse 21. Paul resolved. He determined. He planned. He set goals to go back to Macedonia and Achaia and Jerusalem and Rome. And this wasn't about traveling the world to see the sights. It's about God's mission. Paul wanted to visit the congregations in Achaia and Macedonia, to build them up, to encourage them, to challenge them. This has always been part of his playbook. He wanted to go to Jerusalem, and we're not exactly sure why. Maybe he wanted to go to this deeply Jewish place to remind the religious leaders there that the gospel is not about legalistic self-righteousness, but it's about grace. Maybe he wanted to remind them and show them about what God was doing with the Gentiles. And Paul resolved to go to Rome, to the political epicenter of the world, because he knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a power of God for salvation, and that Jesus is king, not Caesar. Verse 22 says that he sent laborers ahead. He sent his helpers to continue the work, to get the ball rolling, to keep the ball rolling, Paul was committed to working with and equipping others in God's mission. And here's what we see, this first part here, brothers and sisters. 
is this resolve that is rooted in grace is one of the most important influences that God's mission has on our lives. We are created, we're redeemed by God to live lives of sacrifice and action and vision and purpose while at the same time trusting and resting in our sovereign God and His providence. But what do we do? We often forget, we neglect, we betray the influence of God's mission in our lives often in one of two ways. And sometimes we just flip back and forth between these two. Sometimes we live our lives and we just float through. We float through, we live aimlessly, selfishly, day by day with no vision, no resolve, no goals or determination to change ourselves or to see other people change for God. As one writer says, we're entertaining ourselves to death. We live so many times self-referential lives. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we have the privilege to be part of God's cosmic story of redemption and restoration. And we can pray and participate in the Lord's Prayer with conviction when we say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can labor and serve and sacrifice and go and give because God is on a mission and so are we. But sometimes we fail to let the influence of God's mission have an impact in our lives because we never stop. We fail to embrace and lean into God's mission in our lives because our lives are so full of things, activities, work, extracurriculars, sports, clubs, so many good things, but there's so little room for anything else, particularly rest and renewal. And so we live with no margins in our lives. And our culture, what does it do? It, it celebrates this, right? How are things going? It's crazy busy right now. Crazy busy. I'm just... Uh, just grinding, I'm working my side hustle, and uh, you know those things aren't by themselves bad, but they leave little room for rest and renewal and Sabbath. And whether we realize it or not, one of the things that motivates us in that direction is we think that we have to control everything. We have to hold the world together on our own shoulders, and the influence of God's mission reshapes and reorients our our resolve, our plans, our patterns, our determination, so we can be remade into the image of Jesus and remember, everything doesn't depend on you. Everything doesn't depend on us. God is working, and that means he can, we can rest and believe and know that we can cease striving and know that He is God and we are not. So, how do your priorities, how do your, uh, how the things that are central to your life, how do they need to be influenced and shaped by God's mission? Are there areas where you need to step up and step out in service and vision, even though it's scary and stretching? Are there areas in your life where you need to reorder your resolve around God's mission, which includes one of the most countercultural things about Christianity rest. 
That's the first thing we see is God's mission influences our resolve. Second, we see in verses 23 and following a disturbance. At the same time, verse 23, there arose no little disturbance about the way. In other words, there was a big fuss. The Christian message had concrete influence and impact in Ephesus. Some people didn't like it, and so there was a disturbance. Think of me about sports for a second. The purpose of defense in sports is to bring disturbance or disruption. So, like the full court press, right? You, you want to disrupt the other team from getting the ball up the court. You want to steal it so your team can make baskets. One of the influences and impacts of God's mission and the gospel is that it shakes things up. This is what happened in Ephesus. We're introduced to a guy named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. He must have been some sort of leader in his trade. And uh, he called all these guys together. He made shrines of Artemis. And these were things that people could take home with them. Think about going to Ellis Island and getting a keychain of uh, the Statue of Liberty. They would take these silver shrines home with them so they could worship at home. And he begins to make a case. He says, first of all, this is our livelihood. This is where we make our money. But this guy, Paul, not only here in Ephesus, but throughout Asia, is persuading people and turning them away. Last week we saw the theme of persuasion, how Paul persuaded people that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a fluke, it's not a fad. People's minds were being changed, persuaded by the message, turning away. And this is it's interesting, this is a pagan's perspective about repentance. People are turning away from Artemis to God. And they're saying, can you believe it? They're saying this, that God's made with hands are not God's. Now let's stop for a moment and think about the absurdity of that statement. Essentially, Demetrius is saying, how dare they say that the idols we make of silver are not God's? You remember Isaiah 44, where God exposes the emptiness of idolatry. And he says, you take a piece of wood, and with half of it, you create an idol, and you say, my God. And with the other half, you cook food, and you keep your hands warm. Idolatry is absurd. It was then, and it is now, and They worship stone and and silver and wooden idols. We worship digital images, bottom lines, new things. But idolatry is still empty regardless. Contrary to idolatry, the gospel, gospel repentance and transformation is real. See, this is what happens. When we're converted, there's a change, a definitive break from our old lives It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but coming to Jesus starts us on a new trajectory, a new new pathway where repentance becomes the norm. And in a community overshadowed by, driven by the worship of Artemis, Demetrius and his friends have the right to be afraid. They're worried about the upstream problem, that if people stop worshiping Artemis, they'll stop buying our goods. 
Changed lives by Jesus bring disruption. There's this wonderful illustration of this by the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He tells a story about the influence and impact of the gospel from the Welsh revival in 1904 and 1905. God's Spirit was being poured out. People were being converted and changed. And one place where this was seen was in the coal mines. The miners were notoriously cruel and hardened men. And they used ponies to pull these carts up out of these open pit mines and they would beat and whip and yell and cuss at these ponies all along the way. And when they were converted to Jesus Christ, the ponies stopped working. Because they had been so conditioned to only work under those cruel conditions. And these men, their lives had been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were mild and meek and sorrowful for their sins. And Lloyd-Jones says it this way. You know who knew about God's work in the Welsh, Welsh revival? The pit ponies knew it. The pit ponies knew it. What influence has God's mission had in your life? Is your repentance and obedience and love impacting and disrupting your neighborhoods and your community for Christ? And I'm not talking about being angry. I'm talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it feels like there's very little impact of God's mission Not only in our lives, but in our culture. And there's so many examples of how the gospel could impact us. I just want to highlight two this morning. One is pornography. One of the reasons that explicit images and human trafficking is a thing in this world is because of demand. Think about the impact that could be had in this world if Christians radically repented and turned from and fought this plague in our midst. I bet there would be some sort of meeting where people like Demetrius would get people together to solve this Christian problem. What about generosity? Do you know what the median income is in the world? according to a 2018 Wall Street Journal article. $2,100. Sisters and brothers, we are all rich. You know the average percentage giving for evangelical Christians? 2%. Now look, I don't know what you give to the church. You are generous givers to our church. We've met the budget year after year. This isn't, you know, some appeal to... (laughs) grab money from people, but what if we learned how more and more to live radically, sacrificially generous lives? Think about the missions and the missionaries and the mercy ministry and the transformation that could take place if our lives were impacted more and more by the gospel and God's mission. So after Demetrius stirs up the hornet's nest, there is confusion. And confusion is one of the things that highlights this whole passage. 
verses uh, 28 and following. People cry out, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians must be a big part of their uh, social and personal identity. And uh, there's confusion. Some of the people don't even know why they're there. They grab some of uh, Paul's co-workers or missionary partners, Gaius and Aristarchus. Then the Jews put forth some guy named Alexander and they find out he's a Jew and they continue to riot over and over for two straight hours. And in the midst of all that chaos, God calls us to wisdom. Who wants to go right into the middle of it? Paul. He's never backed down from a fight, right? He's ready to defend the gospel. But it says in verse uh, 30, the disciples would not let him go. Can you imagine trying to tell the Apostle Paul no? And then even some of his friends who worked in the government, maybe not even believers, said, don't touch this with a ten-foot pole. And the town clerk steps up, and he brings some common sense and, and some nonsense at the same time. He says, if Demetrius has a case against these guys, bring it up in court. If we keep going along this way, we will be charged with rioting, and Rome will be on our backs. That's common sense. It makes sense. But he also says, and remember about the sacred stone that fell from the sky, and we are the keepers of the temple of Artemis. That's nonsense. So what can we take away from this section? I want you to remember that God's on a mission, even through disruption, even through confusion. God's in control when th things seem out of our control. When what happens to us and others is not fair, it's not according to our plan, when we're called to unashamedly live for Christ in a secular post-Christian world, at times we will need to exercise wisdom and prudence as we navigate complicated situations relying on the help and input of our sisters and brothers in Christ. And the influence of God's mission means that we can walk through the good days and the bad days with faith and confidence in Jesus. You know the song, O God Beyond All Praising? I love this line. And whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we will triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still. To marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. God's mission brings disruption, but it's part of God's plan. Another huge part of God's plan has always been encouragement. That's what verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1 is about. Look, with that verse, look at that verse with me. After the uproar ceased, the riot stopped. Dear ones, the challenges and the heartbreak and the opposition and the storms of life will pass away. They are temporary. And sometimes it's really hard for us to believe that. Maybe you have no idea how things could possibly change or get better, but here is the reality. This too shall pass. And if it, even if it doesn't pass in this world, we know that God's promise and plan in Jesus means that one day there will be no more tears and no more sadness and no more death and no more pain. 
Our light and momentary afflictions cannot be compared. They're not even in the same ballpark as the glory that will be revealed in us. And Jesus wins. The battle is secure. We know the end of the story. But our hurts and disappointments are still so real. And that's why Paul brought all the Christians together and he encouraged them. Before he left from Macedonia, he called them together and he encouraged them. He reminded them of the promises of God. Maybe he said, Jesus said this would happen. If they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. He told us in the upper room, take heart. In this world, you will suffer tribulation, but take heart, be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Maybe he reminded them of God's mission and the urgency of God's mission. God has done amazing things in Ephesus, and he's going to continue to work and turn the world upside down. We're just getting started. As your pastor, I know some of the things that you struggle with, an overwhelming diagnosis, parenting issues, family problems, grieving the death of a loved one, resentment toward people, resentment toward the world. What about my ailing parents? Why do I keep falling into sin? Why am I so unhappy? What will I do with my life? What influence does God's mission possibly have in me? What difference does the gospel make? Here's my encouragement to you who rest in Jesus. God loves you. God is with you. You are not alone. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. If you are repenting and walking and resting in Jesus Christ, dear brothers and sisters, you are not a fake. You're not a phony. You're not an imposter. But the gospel is bearing fruit in your life even through the struggles and the setbacks and the sins. I want to close with two questions. First, is God's mission, has God's mission influenced and impacted your life? Another way to say it is this. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ the central defining truth of who you are? Are you resting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Is Christ your life? Young people in particular, have you raised the white flag of surrender to the Lord, admitting and believing that my life is not my own, I've been bought with a price? The passage says that there was a disturbance about the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is not only, his door is not only open to us, but He is the door. He's the path. Won't you trust Him? Second question is, how can God's mission have more and more influence in my life? Do we need a new checklist? Do we need to strategize better or a better flow chart? or to try harder. That's not the root of the solution. We are being transformed, transfigured, as we gaze upon the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? So that the surpassing greatness and power can be shown to belong to God and not to us. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We set our gaze on Christ, our Lord, our Master, our Champion, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Dear ones, God is on a mission through us and in us. May we experience and embrace His influence as we walk with Him this week. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness, Your grace, Your compassion. We thank You that You are at work, not only in this world, but in us. Give us courage to repent of our sins and to be renewed day by day by Jesus, our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.